Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk for now and make a podcast. <laughs> this is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. I put the for now in there because the congregational gratitude challenge is swiftly approaching. And we're going to win. When the Grove wins. You are going to have to go back to running with me in the mornings instead of walking. And we were talking about it today, this morning while we were walking. I thought it was two miles. It's more like three miles. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm going to need the saints at Derrida to really step up. <laughs> I think that everyone within the sound of my voice who loves Yolando and wants him to have a long and prosperous oh, life so wrong. should so wrong. participate on the Grove side so that we can win, so that he can run, so that he can be here to That's see so his grandchildren's children. So wrong. I how, mean, just truth. How are you going to use Your child. something good like my health against me? I mean, <laughs> so it's wrong. all goodness. It's giving it's thanks goodness. and health. I, if someone doesn't know, our our churches, we're going to, both of us are going to preach a series on giving thanks in November. Mm-hmm. And as part of it, we, we really want to unpack it as a spiritual discipline Correct. and what all of the implications are. And so we really want to create an opportunity to encourage folks in our congregation and in our communities. Psst, you're in our to practice giving thanks. So let's not just learn about giving thanks. Time let's out. Let's give thanks. Time out. Did you so, just encourage our podcast listeners to participate to, for sure? Yes, for you, for your I did side. not. If you will roll back the tape, oh, I did not encourage my. them. You just did I just that. said they should participate. And and you should participate wherever you like. Um, if you want to participate or not, it's fine. But you should um, give thanks because it really is one of those simple things that we could do, but we don't do, and it is transformative, and we're off buying snake oil and trying to climb mountains to get transfiguration, and just stopping with an awareness and looking at what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, and grounding ourselves in that makes a huge difference in not only how we feel, although that's not nothing, God doesn't want us walking around miserable, But it also makes a huge difference in our ability to trust God and participate in the coming of the kingdom. So, yes, I want people to be a part of it. And if the fun is what draws them in, that's great. But for real, it's just about encouraging people to do something that will flood their lives with joy and awareness of God's goodness and presence. And if the added benefit of that is my church beats your church. I mean, I'm going to take my blessing. And then you are going to run with me. And when you hold your grandchild in your arms, your first thought can be, thanks, Kate. Thank you. Which That's going to be my first thought. (laughs) Which is giving thanks. So anyway, (laughs) what, what, what is astonishing you today? We didn't, we didn't even do the thing. Every week on the pot, you got to say your line. You didn't say your line. 
What line? Because I cut you off every week, as always. We're talking about. I said that line. You were so eager <laughs> to oh, get I, people on I your really, side in I this really challenge that you, you did not even hear me. And That's I'm astonished that um, you. Stop it. No, you, you're not. You are not <laughs> astonished at me not listening. That is way too <laughs> mundane. And uh, what's the word? Quotation? Yeah, you're not astonished Whoa. at that. Well, seriously, um, I'm astonished uh, by um, a, a family in our church, um, particularly one member of this family that we celebrate his life on Friday. You know, we've had a number of people in our church family to uh, get COVID, and you know, we've been praying for them, and um, many have recovered. We still have one in the hospital, and um, uh, we're sad that one of our brothers uh, passed away last week and we celebrated his life on Friday and it was a beautiful service. He was a member of our worship team. Our praise team was a singer. Um, His name is Roy and um, Roy, um, while in the hospital, said to one of his daughters, the thing I want to do most is sing at my own funeral. And so um, the only two people that knew were uh, me and her. She recorded him in the hospital singing one of his favorite songs, a song that he sang just three weeks ago as a solo in worship. Oh, my gosh. And um, she pulled out the speaker and played it, and it was a beautiful moment. And what deeply moved me was to see his wife, Margaret, who does all of our um, projection, screen projection on Sunday morning. She prepares all of that, was to see her sing as if it were Sunday morning in worship. I don't know if I could have even mouthed the words um, because of grief, but through her grief, um, she sang with him, and it was it was just a really beautiful um, moment, um, not only to celebrate his life and their life together, married 57 years, but it was a beautiful testimony of his service to the Lord, um, and um, so I'm just astonished by the the beauty, the the love. The um, you know, sometimes as pastors, we can get caught up in our role in a moment like that, in a in a event like that. Yeah. You know, we've got to preach, we've got to prepare uh, this liturgy, this service. We've got to lead it, and then there comes these wonderful surprises like this. And and she told me. You know, just before the service, look, I have this thing. Can I do it? And I said, absolutely. And oh I knew gosh. it would be good, but I, I was astonished by the sheer beauty. And well, I had to get myself together yeah. to do the next I mean, part I, of the service. What I think is so powerful about that moment is it just reveals what is always true, which is, I mean, every week when we worship, what we're doing is tapping into the truth that gives us the courage to live and 
fearlessness of dying, right? And we're bearing witness to that, to everyone around us. And that is what is holy and what is just so sacred that it is hard to put names on it, like it put words around it. It makes me think of, you know, it, when I was in seminary in Hebrew Bible class, my, one of my professors used to talk about the idea that, and I think it's a biblical idea that like what it, that a, one definition of holiness, maybe it's an ancient rabbinic idea that holiness is what defiles the hands. I mean, just this idea that what is holy is so pure and raw and powerful that it just um, is untouchable. Mm. And for me to think about your friend, your um, brother in his hospital room, clearly knowing that death is near and then saying, while I have breath in my body, I want to sing and praise God. And I want to bear witness, even when people gather at my grave, that I trust the Lord with my life. Like that is just, you know, what that other saying about like, you know, we're not worthy of them. Like that's Mm. just a moment of Mm. saying like, you know, who is worthy to be in a community with someone who is that um, full of love and trust for God. And I mean, it reminds me, um, several years ago, my kids are part of a um, dance studio, or they were pre-COVID, um, and there's a family in this dance studio. It's a, um, you know, it's a ministry in a dance studio, and there's a family in that dance studio where one of their daughters died really unexpectedly, and it was really, I mean, obviously just tragic beyond comprehension and she was always there um and so like all the little girls knew her and and so you know we were all at the service which was a home going which was giving thanks for her life and I was there as a I didn't have any role um as I shouldn't have I was there just as a friend and to well, you want to show up and surround people with love and say, you're not in this alone just by your physical presence. And so I was near the back and I was just watching and it was the same thing. I was just, I mean, I almost lost it because her mother and father were in the front row of the sanctuary, lifting their hands in praise to God. Um, and I know them, and, and I know maybe if you're from the outside of a Christian community, you could you could hear that, and I and I understand that people would think, you know, that's monstrous. No one should have to praise God as they're burying their child, and that's true. No one should. Like God does not require that of us at all, at all. And and people can come, people can say they'll never go into a sanctuary again if they want to. People can raise their fist and curse God when they grieve the loss of a child. Like that's, that is a valid expression of, of pain. And it is valid to say to God, why didn't you save my child from death? That, but when people um, choose authentically, not because they have to, but because it's genuine, that 
they want to praise God for their child's life and praise God because they trust the God who gave them their child with their child, even at the point of their child's death. Like that is just so, um, it's, it's just so beautiful. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I want to share the story of that moment, but you also just don't even want to defile it by wrapping Mm. words around it or trying to tell people this is what it means or, you know, it just, it happened and we should just behold that. And anyway, so I, that is, that is a, beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and I think, you know, every week there's that song, I mean, we'll probably sing it a lot in this gratitude challenge about 10,000 reasons. And one of the links is, um, you know, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time time is is done. Yeah. Still, still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 reasons and forevermore. And I, you know, that's what he did. Mm -hmm. You know, he, Mm -hmm. he knew that his time on earth was ending and with his last strength and his last breath, he was getting what a, just what a gift to God, but what a gift to his family and to everyone who was bearing witness. And I think, you know, as much as we're always thinking about the practicalities of doing ministry and you know, the institution is not a dirty word. And, and so, you know, there's a institutional nature of church and we want to do it well with beauty, but you know, that is what, (laughs) you know, that is what is, um, salvific and transformative. And that is not something that we can manufacture. (laughs) And if it isn't there, then none of the other stuff matters. And, um, that's just really, a gift. I mean, even third hand is just a gift. Yeah, to that was that a beautiful story. moment. So what is astonishing you? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I wanted to share that I am astonished that we um, had a really beautiful baptism um, mm. at the Grove on Sunday, um, which is just kind of so, I mean, what is so great about being part of a faith community is that um, we, we, celebrate the beginning and the ending Mm -hmm. of life, all of it as a gift. And, um, so this was a, an infant baptism and the family has some particular health concerns. So they've been worshiping with us online and this child was born during COVID times. And so, um, but they wanted her to be baptized and they asked if there was any way that we could do, um, the baptism outside. And so we just, you know, we've been taking communion outside. We sort of at the end of worship and having everybody stream out to take communion under the trees. And so we did the same thing. We moved the baptismal font out of the sanctuary out onto the front lawn. And, um, after service, I mean, not after service, it was during service, but Mm -hmm. it was at the end, you know, everyone came out and made a big circle around the font and, um, and we were, and we baptized this child, which again, like to your point, there's so much of ministry that requires, you know, thought and preparation and creativity and intentionality. And then there are these sacramental moments that we don't, you can't plan and can't make happen. Correct. And all, all, all you can do is really recognize that these are the most important moments. And so, um, it it was really beautiful. And, And, and not everyone in our community, 
practices infant baptism and that's okay. Um, but I think it's so beautiful um, that the idea or, or the truth that infant baptism is part of our tradition, not a requirement, but a part of our tradition is so deeply beautiful and formative to me because, um, you know, it, it embodies the truth that our faith is built not on our response to God, but on God's response to our sinful weakness, right? And so when a child is baptized into the covenant before they even know what the covenant is, I mean, I think that really confounds and confuses us um, in our sort of quote-unquote enlightenment thinking, like it, that doesn't work and how can that be and that's not fair and that's not right. Um, and yeah, I mean true, all of your objections are factual, but not valid, because what we are bearing witness to is being overwhelmed by the flood of God's salvific goodness and love that we did not earn, and we have not produced, and we cannot achieve. And that's what baptism justifies to. And also, I think, for me as a mother, um, and I, I did not baptize my children. Like I wanted that delineation to be very clear that I got to baptize I know, one. I know yeah, your youngest. Um, that was youngest. great. Um, because I met you after my middle was born. So, mm -hmm. um, but for me as a mother to stand there and, you know, for me, that is a moment of relinquishing a moment of really soberly, um, recognizing that I, you know, this child was created within my physical body, but was not created by me. Like I did not produce or form, or I'm not responsible. I'm, I'm not responsible for the life of this child. I don't have the capacity within me to create life. Um, but rather to be a vehicle and a receptacle for, for the tangible embodied goodness of God and the responsibility and weight of raising a child, um, to be who God created that child to be and to love God and know God and serve God, I can't carry that weight. Mm. I, I can't. Uh, it would crush me, that responsibility. And so for me, that moment of baptism is a moment of me giving um, my children, I, I think, and for us, it's giving our children back to God and mm. saying, this child came from you and I I recognize that this child does not belong to me. And I recognize that ultimately I am not, I cannot promise to save this child from anything. So, you know, I, I trust that this child is caught up in your covenant and that makes me free to love and nurture and care in all my flawed, feeble weakness, knowing that, you make up the gap and, and, um, it, cause I think when we, and I think our culture tries to make us, especially mothers bear soul and full responsibility for our children, that weight crushes and warps us mm -hmm. and, and really twists and distorts our love for our children. And I think a lot of the, um, foolishness, um, that happens with, parents and children comes from this sense of I'm responsible for you. And so I have to, um, sometimes do ungodly things in order to do what I think is best from you instead of, instead of being able to just love this child in the freedom of knowing that I'm, I am not God to this child. 
it was helpful for me to become a parent after I became a pastor mm-hmm. because there, there's a similarity there. You, you have this weight of responsibility, but you also, by God's grace, realize that without God's help, you cannot do this. And so there is a reliance not upon self, but, but upon God for help. And, um, yeah, I was shaped, I think, by pastoring to parent. Yeah. And I think, like, we come around this a lot when we, we talk about it in pastoring a lot, just sort of a, a healthy detachment, mm-hmm. a joyful detachment of sort of knowing your place, mm-hmm. knowing your smallness, and then that frees you to be able to love and serve and give in the ways that you can And then, you know, there is a kind of freedom that comes with accepting your powerlessness. And so being able to say, my kids can ask questions, my kids can, you know, speak the truth that they're living in the moment, and I don't have to, you know, punish them or threaten them or withhold affection from them to try to, you know, I am free to love them unconditionally um, and know that ultimately... They belong to God. And um, yeah, so I, I really, it, it has been a good thing. But I think that level of, I mean, I just see in the church a lot, sometimes when we we understand God's vision for the world, but we misunderstand and sort of appropriate God's role and sort of think that oh, we need to step in and like, you know, control things, make it happen, take that responsibility on, whether it's, yes. whether we sometimes, I mean, again, like, you know, a la Mars Hill think I'm going to do what I need to do to get mm-hmm. what needs to be done done because I know bet like just falling into that trap of, of functioning in a godlike role instead of in your very human role of yeah, limitedness. I, you, I think you hit the right word when you said control. We, we just want to control mm-hmm. with the idea that um, my contr- the ends justifies the means, right? right? Yeah. Instead of learning what, you know, the culture teaches us that you know, if we just work harder, buy more, be strategic, mm-hmm. we can control and teaches us to fear weakness and vulnerability. And the Jesus way, if we're wise, will teach us to delight in our weakness and to rejoice in our vulnerability because God is good. And it's really when we are, I think, resisting those things that we become the most dangerous to ourselves and others and the most closed down from the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, one of the things that's heartbreaking for me is when I see uh, Christians or former Christians who feel like they they have to turn to um, something like Buddhism to get that uh, call to uh, release, to not control, to relinquish. Um, but it's it's in the Christian tradition as well. Unfortunately, the the church has failed in many cases to to teach that, to show that, to walk that out in such a way that people are formed in that way. Right. And let me just I mean, I don't know how long we've been talking, but let me just ding the bell and bring it to racism, because I think that in America, um, you know, reading stamped from the beginning was really helpful. I think that the um Christian tradition was very shaped in certain ways to justify economic systems of slavery where explicitly people were told like, no, 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 this economic system is justified because it is bringing salvation to these people. And so basically, you know, instead of being in this, um, our God-given role of weakness and vulnerability, we were told um, that the Christian tradition was given to us so that we could act as God on earth Mm -hmm. and towards other 
people that we perceive to be not like us. And, and, you know, so that, I mean, I think it's not that, I think that part of our tradition was deliberately obscured because it's hard to build an empire and it's hard to be a colonizer if you see yourself not as a person who is is weak and vulnerable and and being filled but if if you want to encourage a group of people to support colonization or support empire yes. building um, then you've got to tell them that you're demigods that you yeah. are well you have priests and monks traveling with Spanish conquerors who have crosses on their you know armor or whatever right yeah, yeah. anyway so that's um, I, I just, I'm laughing that I was trying to talk about baptism and then, <laughs> um, but I do think it is interesting, you know, one of the reasons that infant baptism can be really offensive in America is because it removes salvation from the realm of personal responsibility and moves it back into the realm of, of grace and receiving and that offends us um, in the ways that the parts of us that have been shaped by the culture. Mm, so. That's good. What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? I am thinking about um, Pastor Tony Evans, and he has, for the past couple of weeks, been preaching his alternative to CRT, that is critical race theory. Can you give me and everyone else a little bit more backstory of Tony Evans? Like his is a name that I know, but I don't know precisely what context I know it from. Tony Evans, um, I have listened to Tony Evans sermons since literally since I was in high school. Mm -hmm. He's been on the radio that long uh, and I'm 50. So (laughs) that lets you know. Um, And even then he was Dr. Tony Evans, uh, a prominent African-American evangelical preacher, large church in Dallas, Texas, um, in in suburban Dallas, um, Oak Cliff Bible Church. Um, He has, I don't know if he still has it, but back in the day, he had a radio program called The Urban Alternative. So it was an urban um, African-American, young African-American focused evangelical Christian program. And when it came to Christian radio, one of the few, I can't think of another black voice. As a matter of fact, he tells stories of how difficult it was uh, to get on radio. And he says, you know, someone once told him, look, we we can't have you on every day because our white listeners will be offended. Um, And he, he tells those kinds of stories. Uh, he's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, a conservative evangelical seminary. Um, he preaches in a style that's, you know, it's called expository preaching. So he is a uh, very text-driven, uh, sometimes verse by verse. And he's been very important in the formation in my own preaching, of my own preaching style, because I, over the years, have listened to him a lot. Um, and he is um, probably within the top five influential preachers in my life that I've never met personally. I mean, he's um, he's been instrumental in 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 my formation as a Christian and as a preacher. So that's that's a, a little backstory. 
Um, so he has been, for the past two weeks, preaching his alternative to CRT, critical race theory, and he's calling it KRT, Kingdom Race Theology, Kingdom Race Theology. And um, I think there are some things that he gets right, and I think I think we part ways um, in some places. So uh, he does this analysis of kingdom race theory that is, it's pretty good. I mean, he gives the history of um, racist laws in the country and how even after those racist laws are removed, there's a system that remains in place. I mean, he gives the example of, okay, you have uh, the laws of segregation, um, and then after those laws are removed, you might have a country club, a golf club that has um, uh, that's member member owned, and so now the the rule in the club is that you have to have two thirds vote to get in. Well, if in, in that system, uh, if you're an African American, if two thirds don't vote you in, you're out. And so essentially, we we have set up these systems of racism that continue to have an effect even after the laws are gone. So that part of CRT is like, yep, we should um, uh, be talking about this and um, not accepting uh, systemic racism. Yeah, and one thing, I mean, I think it's worth to just pause on that because I think this concept of systems can be really a difficult one to wrap your mind around. And I think the example that you gave is really good, but I, I can imagine that some people would be thinking like, yeah, that's, ugly and it's not a club I would want to be a part of but like who who cares that if like mm -hmm. black people can't belong to a racist club why would they want to but like if that's you're not talking a, about politics economics if yeah I think yeah. another example that would be help would be to say because I think the difference mm -hmm. is a law might specifically say black people can't or only mm -hmm. white people can mm -hmm. but a system would say oh this is the way we do things and it applies equally to everyone so it can't be racist but if the system is say you cannot get into this college unless you get a four on the AP physics test, but only certain schools have an AP physics class, then that system can be applied equally to all applicants, but that system will allow mostly only affluent and white applicants to get in. But someone can say, yes. this isn't discriminatory because anyone who gets a four on the AP physics test can get in. But the reality is the system of public funding of public education in our country means that de facto, the end is the same. The means is different, yes. but the end is the same. Privilege is concentrated in a certain set of people. And that's really important for and people I, to understand. And I think Evans would agree with that. He would say, okay, yes, that goes back to a system of segregation and you have this legacy. So even when you change the law, there are these rules in place that essentially um, keep this racist system. And I think the other thing is, I think people go like, well, I mean, are you saying that there's like a bunch of people sitting around in a basement somewhere, like designing these systems yeah. on perfect? You don't no. have to believe that they are purposefully being done. You don't have to think that because the reality is if there's only one kind of one kind of group of people sitting at a table designing a system, then even without malice intention, they're going to assume that what is fair for them and their communities 
is fair for all communities. And if no one with a different experience has access to even say, hey, this might not be your design, but this is this might not be your intent, but this is the mm-hmm. impact in my community. But if people don't even have access to tell that truth, then those systems can be designed with the intention, with a sincere intention of equity and still preserve um, the unequal distribution of resources and access, right? So I think yes. that's really important for people to get to because I think one of the people that the ways that white people stumble over all of this is just to say, well, you're saying that all white people are, you know, just demonic and full of hate and awful. And that's not in my heart and be like, okay, I believe you. Well, he uses that same, um, illustration of a a country club, a golf club. And let's say you're part of the one third that voted yes for this black member to join that person in that one third could say, hey, I'm not racist. I voted in the affirmative. But you also have to say yes, but you're you're a part of this system that works for your benefit and works against the works against um, any black people getting in. Right. And you have to acknowledge that right. you have a place in that system. That you have not quit the country club. Yes. Well, in w- one of the things about Evans that is really um, powerful and brilliant is that he has a way of speaking and talking about very complicated issues in a way that helps people understand. Like I probably would not have used the golf club or I think it was a golf club uh, illustration, but I was like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. And so he's taken something that um, like most people don't talk about every day, which is systemic racism. It's like, let me give you a picture. So that was helpful um, he, he does have a couple of illustrations in that sermon that I would not use. Um, Oyve, if you listen to it, there's one about black coffee and white cream. I was like, oh, okay, um, okay. Anyway, so um, so he 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 explains CRT. He does well when it comes to racism and systemic racism, and I'm like, okay, I am totally tracking with you. And then he says, but here's the problem. The problem is that other ideas and other groups have now been attached to CRT, critical race theory. And he names two. He says, these two groups, these two entities, ideas are problematic. And this is what surprised me. The first group, he said, is the 1619 project. Yeah. I was like, what? So Can the 1619 okay. project is really about um, looking at the founding of this country and the role slavery played in it. So the, uh, I guess the thesis is that America was not founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but really started in Uh, 1619, when the first African slaves were brought to Jamestown, and that the American Revolution wasn't about simply freedom from Britain. It was the freedom to 
own slaves and proper and, and, and prosper economically. And that is um, the labor of Nicole Hannah Jones. Yes. Who recently, I think we've talked about on this podcast, mm-hmm. was offered the position of, of a journalism professor tenured track position, tenured position mm-hmm. at UNCC. No, not UNCC, UNC Chapel Hill. And then trustees, wealthy white trustees said no. Um, and she challenged it. Uh, and then eventually, after the threat of the law school lawsuit, the school relinqu- relented and said, okay, you can have the position. And then she left and went to Howard, I think. And um, But again, just this idea of this is not, it's not an opinion piece. It is presenting historical documents and then and then talking about what they mean in ways that challenge the myth that we want to tell ourselves about how this country came to be, which is that it was empty. <laughs> there was no one here. We, we Europeans discovered it, that, econo- that transatlantic slavery was a humane, benign, reasonable economic system that no one at the time could have thought was unjust or brutal. And that just, I mean, it, it is a myth that we have absorbed in a, we white people have absorbed in a thousand different ways. Um, And when it is challenged, there's just visceral, um, uh, threat, you know, we're threatened and we attack people who challenge it. But I think if you ask a six-year-old on the one hand, tell them the story of the founders saying, it's not fair for Britain to tax us. We should be free. And then ask a six-year-old, is it, is it right that the people who knew they should be free from Britain should enslave black people? A six-year-old will not be able to come up with a complicated justification for you know because it we have to grow, um, we have to get really sophisticated thought patterns to be able to come up with some sort of, you know, plausible deniability strategy to say this is both the land of the free and the home of the brave, and also slavery was not a real thing. It didn't really make a difference. It wasn't really that bad, and it really doesn't define who we are as a nation. And see, Evans doesn't go that far. He says, you've got to tell the truth about the history. You've got to tell the, the, the truth about uh, the destruction of Black Wall Street. You've got to tell all of those stories about the horrors of slavery. He says, you've, you've got to tell that narrative. Um, but what he, he contends that what's been set up is this um, duality, that you either have um, the, the narrative the European narrative of the founding of this country, or from his point of view, the 1619 narrative, which says from the get-go, from the beginning, the motivation, the why of this country was racism and the enslavement of Africans. And he comes down on the side of he tries to walk this middle way of 
tell the stories of the horrors of slavery and at the same time tell the story of freedom in the Declaration of Independence. And that, that is the story of America, but America did these horrible things. Um, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I think there is a way to say more than one thing can be true. Yeah. How you do that matters. If you, in this case, if you do it in a way that minimizes the legacy of slavery, I mean, you can tell the, the horrors of it, but if you minimize its effect, effects, then it, by, by overshadowing it with, yeah. yes, but there's this freedom story, this declaration of independence, and right? Um, overall, they were good guys. I would not want to tell both stories that way. I mean, I think, th and that's often what happens, right, is you sort of say, well, yes, but something glorious and beautiful started in America mm -hmm. that never existed before, and, and you tell it in such a way as if the suffering and murder and Holocaust against indigenous people somehow were worth it because now we are some city on a hill testifying to integrity and justice and freedom, and especially, that's problematic. Especially if you don't call for repentance. Right, because I think when I think about those founding fathers in a room, I think the real sober wisdom and the real tragedy of them is just how human they are. Because to me, it's just Jesus saying, like, you, you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye, right? Yes. Like, they could very clearly see the injustice Done of the, the ways that they were being limited and oppressed. They could see it. And they had sort of a holy zeal and fire to know that that wasn't the way that they were intended to live. Like, that was authentic what in their humanness which is no different than my humanness or anyone's humanness is what they couldn't see is the ways that they were profiting from an unjust system were equally abhorrent to god right they just they couldn't see it and that doesn't make them in my opinion that does not make them terrible people it makes them human people right and that's why i think we need to be able to tell the story of to me like you know, I believe not that America is more important to God than any other country. For that matter, I don't believe that Israel is more important to God than any other country. I don't believe that biblical Israel was more important to God than any other country. I think that the chosen nation was chosen so that all people might discover their chosenness and be reunited to their creator, right? So I don't believe that God, that America's founding moment was God's, you know, preeminent intervention in human history. But I do believe that God was there, right? Because God is in the room with us all the time and is anything we do can be something that manifests the kingdom of God or, or, or doesn't, right? So do I believe that those men in that room were, were sincerely seeking God? Some of them for sure, for sure. As, as much as any of us can. And do I believe that God was trying to birth something in that room? Sure, because I think God is trying to birth something in every room. But do I think that what happened there is what happens all the time, which is we seize onto the promises of God that seem to unlock goodness and richness in our lives, and we resist the 
promises of God that call us to repentance and what is perceived as sacrifice, right? And the reality is, how might the future of the world have changed if in that moment they had said, oh, what is true for me is true of all humans and we need to come up with another way. And I think like we, I mean, obviously we don't know what could have happened, but I think the assumption of people who are so resistant to the 1619 project was, well, whatever would have happened, it would have been worse, right? And I just think it's for people of faith to say in that moment, if we had let justice roll down like a mighty river, if, if we had embraced a law truly based on the welfare of all and shalom, we of all people ought to be open to the resistance that that we lost something incredibly precious on that day and that we might be living in an entirely different world if there really had been a brave experiment of democracy and justice and liberty for all people and but i think we make this assumption that like no we we are the best country ever because we are the most preeminent empire and we think whatever we had to do to get to this place was it's worth justified. it when the reality is the bible would say hey like rome was not god's ideal <laughs> and and so you know the the things that the world calls great are not great in the kingdom of god and so as an american you can think that i guess but as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to really grieve what was lost in that room. And you don't have to deny that the Holy Spirit was trying to birth something. But I mean, it was a stillbirth, I think, in yeah. so many ways. So Evans uh, says that there are these entities that have been attached to critical race theory. One is the 1619 Project, which ultimately, he says, distorts the story of America. Then he says uh, the second uh, thing that has been attached to CRT is the Black Lives Matter. Uh, he, and he makes a distinction between the movement and the organization. He says there's a movement and an organization. And for him, the organization is um, twisted and is idolatrous. Uh, for him, the organization, um, uh, because it supports uh, transgender rights, uh, he, as an evangelical, he, he he feels like he's got to reject that. Um, he, he feels that it is um, ultimately um, a, a Marxist organization and or has a Marxist, um, um, some Marxist undergirding philosophy. And so as an evangelical Christian, he must reject that organization. And um, that also to me was disappointing. I, I just think it's so interesting just to look at when we're talking about transgender rights, and I have not done a deep read on the platform of the Black Lives Matter organization because I'm not responsible for that organization. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, if the right to not be murdered, the right not to be victimized by hate crimes, the right to have a job, um, the right to use a public restroom. Like, I don't understand he, how we're glorifying God, no matter what you think about human sexuality. He would say yes to all those things you just said. Well, then, And at the same time say, but we can't be a part of this movement. And I'm asking myself, well, why can't we as Christians um, partner where we feel like we can partner and 
those places of disagreement, let's let's have a conversation. If we truly believe that we're right, let's say I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe I'm right. I believe that uh, Black Lives Matter um, have some things right, and, and we're entering into a partnership. Well, then as salt and light in the world, then I, I want to be in relationship and have conversation, debate even, about the things that we don't agree on. But to say, nope, you stay over there, can't be involved with you because you might taint me, I I, I don't see um, well, Christians not, having yeah. the same kind of, of energy around uh, white supremacist groups. No. I, and I mean, this is a, just an unbiblical understanding of the holiness of God, right? Like the idea of, you know, sort of ancient, um, whatever, non-Yahwistic understandings of holiness was, and even like covenant understandings of holiness is you, you have to be pure or else somehow you will corrupt the holy. And when Jesus comes, it is to you know, uh, subvert that misunderstanding that God's holiness cannot be corrupted by our defiled, by our unholiness, that God's holiness is actually contagious. And that's not even, that is not uh, limited to New Testament. I mean, that is uh, the theology explicitly of Ezekiel's image of the new temple, right? That what is holy flows out of the temple and you know, infects and corrupts the whole world with holiness, right? So so to say, like, we need to separate ourselves and remain apart, I mean, that's a pagan understanding of holiness, not a biblical understanding of holiness. And I also just think, again, like, there's just nothing in Scripture that would, would justify saying, I need to stand against someone's rights, that there, that's not biblical. It doesn't even matter. I mean, Jesus didn't stand. I mean, he intervened to stop the death of the woman caught in adultery. And that wasn't him saying, well, adultery is fine. It was Jesus saying, you know, no one, we don't kill each other. Right. And, and so I just, I mean, I think human sexuality is um, something that has been, our understanding of human sexuality has been so corrupted by our culture. Um, but the church's reaction to that has been, honestly, I would argue more destructive than any cultural distortions. I I really, I really, and most of, I think what the culture gets wrong is their reaction to our reaction, right? So I just... And one could say the same with critical race theory. So now instead of focusing on the real issue, racism in America... We are just so focused on critical race theory and not the thing that critical race theory is pointing to. Well, and I've said this before. I mean, what really makes me mad is it is just rich. It is just uh, uh, like the level of human hubris. And I'm not talking about Tony Evans when I say this. Just I'm talking about the church in general that we have neglected our biblical mandate to justice for generations. And now a movement has risen up calling for the thing that we should have been 
calling for all along and that frankly it's mostly our people who are the most egregious violators so if we had been it wouldn't even be a need for the movement anymore but because we neglected to be the people that we were created to be but now we think that we get to tell people how to work for justice when we white Christians for so long have not been interested in doing it at all because this unjust system, we have misunderstood it to benefit us, which, I mean, there are material benefits, but what we know when we look at the world through the lens of the gospel is that material benefits are actually curse in the kingdom of God, right? So, but just the, the unmitigated gall of us thinking that we have the moral high ground to say, no, you're going about this in the wrong way. I, I mean, it just, it makes... It makes me, again, I'm not talking specifically about Tony Evans, but I, it just makes me sick that I, if the church wanted a movement, the church should have had a movement. And we didn't. And um, we could have had whatever kind of movement we wanted. Um, but, but the plain sad truth is the church is so embedded in institutional worldly power that we were unwilling to challenge it and to sacrifice what we perceive to be our strength, which was not the Lord, but was our cultural power and our money. Mm. Well, Evans uh, says to his congregation that they ought to know about critical race theory. They need to understand critical race theory. And he he does affirm this need to um, clearly... um, get our heads around systemic racism. And I, I, I'm really happy about that. He then moves to KRT, Kingdom Race Theology, and he goes to Ephesians 2, where the Apostle Paul is um, he's talking about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles in the church and the place where it says that uh, in Christ, God is creating one new humanity. And so um, he, he moves then to talk a lot about um, like interpersonal racism and how like there's this one place where he, well, he says that and I think I get what he was, where he was going, but it just kind of, um, it struck me the wrong way. He said, you know, black people <laughs> overreact to racism oh. and, and that black lives matter is an overreaction. Um, and, and then he told oh the story, he told the story about uh, um, a white man that was in his home and uh, they're having this conversation. This is an older white man. And the older white man referred to him as boy. And he said, you know, because there is a history. He said, I felt that in my gut. And he says, he says I, I felt that. And I was debating about how to respond. Because um, I wanted to respond as a Christian. But as a black man, that struck me the wrong way. And he said he was about to respond when there was another white man who came in and the first white man also referred to the second white man as boy and he said he there was just this relief and he's like oh 
I was viewing this the wrong way. And he says, sometimes as black people, we just overreact and we have to, we have to watch that. And I was like, okay, I, <laughs> there's a part of me that kind of gets that because you have to, you have to be wise about how you navigate this society. And you cannot, you cannot react and respond to everything because the weight of that will destroy you. It will, you just can't do it. And so there, there's a wisdom there. But <laughs> it also communicates to white people that when black people say something about racism, that mm, most of the time these folks are overreacting. Huh. And this, is, this really isn't as big of a deal as um, they make it out to be. Well, I would say two things. One is, if you want to be in a whole, healthy and a holy, truthful, authentic, inter multi interracial, interethnic friendship, then there has to be a place where if that white man really cares about Tony Evans, he would want to know, mm -hmm. right? You, I mean, when I hurt my friends with my words, I want my friends to tell me because I don't want to hurt them with my words. Mm -hmm. so, so there's just this element of like, if a relationship is going to be good and not just appear good, then they're like, I don't, that counsel is troubling to me, but but put that aside because the Black Lives Matter movement is not a don't call black people boy movement. Like right. that's not what's at stake. What's at stake is Ahmaud Arbery being yes. shot three times in the chest by white people who thought that he was where he didn't belong and was doing something that looks suspicious. Mm -hmm. And the problem is those things that can be labeled microaggressions are just a matter of feelings until they become a matter of life and death, right? Like mm -hmm. that that's the problem is they don't stay in the realm of hurt feelings. And even if we decide that our hurt feelings don't matter, the problem is that when these um, ideas are not disrupted and when we are not as white people taught to see the insidious and often unconscious way we see people of color as less human than us, then in situations of fear or you know, confusion or doubt, those, those ideas get embodied in actions that, that kill people, not to mention choices, you know, systemic choices that lock people into, um, lives of poverty that really do limit human flourishing and rob us of the gift of flourishing community that God created us to have. So I just, and you know, and lock us in these roles of enmity. So, but I mean, that is just so frustrating to me. And I do feel, I mean, as a white woman, I am hesitant to, I, I mean, who am I to tell Tony Evans, how to, Dr. Tony Evans, how to think about racism in America, but it troubles me when we, when the example is, that is given is one that is minimal in when there are so many examples of like Trayvon Williams and, mm -hmm. 
you know, little kids playing with toy guns and getting shot and somebody picking up a gun in a Walmart that sells guns and getting shot. I mean, like, it's not trivial. People are dying on the streets. And Yeah, I was talking to our colleague, um, Albert Moses, about this yesterday, who is um, an African-American pastor here in this city. And one of the things that came to my mind was, you know, this may be like the civil rights movement. Because there was a time during the civil rights movement when um, college students said, listen, the reason we have to sit at, um, uh, um, do sit-ins in lunch counters, the reason we have to do these protests, the reason we have to be a bit on the radical side is because we know that there are some older folks who are at a place in life where they're a bit more comfortable. They have a lot more to lose. There's much, so much yeah. more at stake for them. And so they have to walk a certain way. We wish that we're not so, but it is what it is. And so we're going to do these things. And it may be that we just have a bit of a generational divide because even that story that I just told about the guy in his house, for me, when I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, that is that is from a certain generation. Um, someone in their 20s, 30s, that, that's not the kind of story that they would tell. That's not a, that's not a anxiety. Um, and so I do think that there's a bit of a, a generational divide here. Well, and I think, I mean, to be, uh, to be as generous as I could be, you know, critical race theory is not a theology, nor is it purported to be Correct. a theology it was not Correct. created i mean it, it isn't so i mean i think the idea of like we need to propose an alternative theology which i don't even know that he framed it that way but this is what's problematic about me like you i mean critical race theory is a description of legal systems in america mm -hmm. so i mean you can be for it or against it in the same way that you can be for gravity or against gravity but i mean it's a fact Right. And people can be mad at the conclusions that people draw on the, in which I suppose the theory is a, a set of conclusions drawn from data, but mm -hmm. the observations themselves are facts. And so I think we as a church, you know, it's not, it's not our job to react to, uh, you know, to pronounce, I don't think, um, we, we are supposed to say, you know, what is God, you know, what is the will of God for us now that we, now that we see these things, now that scholars have pointed us out to me. So it's not so much that I have an issue with someone within the church saying, how, how will our faith lead us to respond? Um, but I, what is, what is afraid, what I feel as a white person is I can see the way that the Christian tradition has really been shaped and nuanced and distorted in ways to make white people comfortable. And, you know, the fact that critical race theory so clearly unveils injustice in our country when we've been taught that our country really created justice, right? That's why it's so triggering to us. Um, and, that's that makes us really uncomfortable and we say well if it makes me uncomfortable it can't be true and you know people formed in scripture and people who have you know every week show up and hear the words of the prophets should be able to recognize that prophets are not 
trying to make people of faith comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a huge problem in the church um, that instead of <laughs> that, we try to, uh, and, and I did not make this up. Somebody, somebody said this, not me. And I just don't know who it was or I would credit them, but that we try to, you know, adapt the truth to be palatable to people instead of challenging people that if God's truth makes you uncomfortable, change, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what the biblical prophets were doing, right? Like Amos and Jeremiah and Micah were saying, look, God has not moved. You have. And you've made all these kinds of nuances and adaptions and you have all these rationales about like you don't need to keep the covenant as long as you pray six times a week in the temple. That is abhorrent to God. That's why God says that your noise, your worship is just noise that gives them a headache and your burnt offerings stink, right? And I just think that this is true of American Christianity, not all American Christianity, but a lot of American Christianity is the same kinds of religious adaptions that were made by the people of power in ancient Israel. And when the prophets showed up, they really made people mad and they were, I mean, murdered. (laughs) Um, And what they were trying to do was to say, you know, but there was clearly, and it's important to point out, I mean, there clearly was a minority of people who recognized that the prophets were speaking God's truth, which is why we still have their words, right? And from the context of history, people looked back and said, it wasn't, who's the guy who hated Jeremiah? Hananiah was the court prophet that we, I can't remember his name, but there's a court prophet who's named in Jeremiah. I think it's Hananiah. Like we don't have, you know, we only have Hananiah's words to the extent that Jeremiah quoted him to make fun of him, right? Like from the perspective of history, it was clear what justice was, right? Which is one way that I think like children in their innocence sometimes have the same perspective that history will about like, you know, it can look confusing on the ground. It can look like, oh, God would never ask us to do something this painful, but God for sure would, um, would call us to make sacrifices that really ultimately are not sacrifices. And so what, what worries me about, um, kingdom race theology is not so much that a preacher would want to say, Hey, inspired by the truth that critical race theory has uncovered, you know, what's our theological response to that? That's great. But if the motivation is how can I create something that white people will be more comfortable with? Like on the one hand, there's a pragmatic element and I can understand, I can understand pragmatism, honestly, about Tony Evans saying like, Hey, I have a platform and I have an ability to reach to some people who are really resistant to CRT. So if I can explain what it is and then let them know, Hey, here's a way to respond to it. Like on the one hand, I get it. And I mean, he's God's servant, not mine. So, but the problem is, I think ultimately it is not healthy for white people to continually be so centered um, because we need Mm -hmm. to be delivered from the ways that we are still shaped by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that is uncomfortable, but I think that that's the kind of spiritual discomfort that comes from God. And I think that our brothers and sisters, um, you know, our black brothers and sisters when they speak the truth in the way that makes us uncomfortable, but then say, I I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. And I know that God will be with you in this, um, that that is actually 
the work of that, that those are the wounds of a friend mm. that are healing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know what's in his heart or in his head. And I have no doubt that God can use things to work for good. But I just, what worries me is I think there are just a lot of white Christians who will hear what he said and go, see, even Tony Evans says that critical race theories of the yeah. devil, right? And yeah. just walk that's, away. That's, that's my concern. Um, ultimately, he gets a lot of things right. I think in the end, and it's in several parts, and so I've listened to part one. So far, what I've heard is, yes, systemic racism is real. Yes, there is a history of racism in this country. The response, the gospel response, is that in the church, we need to make sure we are walking out the reconciliation of Jesus. Amen. What I haven't heard at this point is, okay, so how are we as disciples of Jesus, how are we to respond now to the systems and structures of injustice that are left? Well, and I also just think the reality is Christian nationalism in America is a demonic spirit that is infecting the church. Mm. And so he's not, he, my worry is that this work in sort of saying, I want, I want to say the 1619 project is problematic because it doesn't tell the truth about America. What it does intentionally or unintentionally is give oxygen to that Christian nationalist fire that says America is God's, you know, chosen elect beloved mm you know, vehicle through whom salvation is going to be delivered to the world. And I, I think that's so dangerous. And, and I think, you know, the reality is the, the Christian nationalists would say like, well, we are like the modern day Israel. And then I'd be like, read your Bible because the prophets, like you're saying this person can't be prophetic or God's not in this because it's not flattering to America and it's not telling the truth about America and America is the modern day Israel. Read the Bible because Basically, all the prophets do is show up and call Israel names, right? Like, that's all they do is they mm -hmm. call Israel a whore and they call mm -hmm. Israel. I mean, like, they 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 just talk about how deeply unfaithful. defiled and unfaithful and abhorrent and angry God. I mean, so, and I just think it's so interesting, like, the, the Jeremiah Wright Sr. sermon, mm -hmm. which he preached soon after 9-11... And I mean, he is a just a bolder prophet than I could ever be. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it because I'm not as brave as he was. Um, but you know, he was noticing. I mean, I'm sure he obviously noticed noticed this before 9/11 too. But that our response to 9/11 was beginning to be, "Isn't America so wonderful?" And he was saying in his sermon, famously based on the prophet Jeremiah, was saying, "No, don't God bless America? God damn America!" And and people were so offended by that. And I'm like, "But if you read the prophets, what they do is show up and say." If you do not start keeping the covenant, like honoring, lifting up the oppressed, like protecting the weak, using your power for the sake of others, I will damn you. God, I speak for God, God will damn you because you are the promised land. And, the, you know, so what he was doing was deeply, deeply biblical. It offended 
so many people because it revealed to a lot of evangelical Christians that they were not worshiping the God of scripture. They were worshiping the God of American nationalism. And you can have a conversation about whether that moment was the right moment, but honestly, it's hard to say, no, it's not appropriate to preach prophetically. I mean, like he did not make that up. Like, I don't think that that's what people I think that's what people don't understand is that he just got up one morning and was like, I'm sick of being black in America, so goddamn America. He didn't make it up. He was preaching. The lectionary was from Jeremiah, and literally it was one of those imprecatory texts where the prophet was pronouncing judgment, and judgment in scripture is damn, like that. that's literally what it was, right? And so I, I just, and and the point he was making was, if you want to tell the story that the Muslim Arabs are mean, bad, violent baby killers and America is the freedom-loving, justice, innocent life givers, that story is a lie. What happened on 9-11 was not okay. It was evil. And that evil came from somewhere and part of the, not the only place, but part of the place it came from were the evil things that American imperialism does around the world, right? That is a call to judgment, which sears and burns. And I'm scared of it, but I cannot, as a biblical scholar, say that was an inappropriate thing to say. Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't. Well, it reminds me of that um article you sent me last week from Relevant Magazine that said something like 19 out of 20 of the most popular Christian Facebook pages are really um, trolls somewhere in Eastern Europe. And when you look at the titles, the names of these pages, they're all like, all like you know, how to be a happy person, how to be successful. Think positive. Think you positive. can do it. Yes, nothing about the cross, Beautiful nothing about service, nothing, nothing about sacrifice. And so when it comes to, to the prophets, yeah, all that stuff is kind of flyover. We might land for a minute when we think there's a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, but but the prophet's critique of, of, of the society is we just fly over that. And I think people will say like, but wait, what about grace? But grace, but grace, but grace. And the thing is, grace comes in the context of God's judgment, not apart from God's judgment, right? So grace doesn't say like, oh, well, it doesn't matter now everything, any choice you make is equally okay in God's eyes. It is, you look at God's judgment and you say, oh, there's no hope. There's no hope for me because my people and I, like I am a Isaiah man of unclean lips and temple, I come from temple, a woe is me. Like, woe is me. I have no hope. And then grace comes in and says, this is God's way and you cannot achieve it, but God is coming in and among you to do within you and on your behalf what you cannot do for yourself. And so God's grace comes as a way of fulfilling God's judgment which is ultimately, again, for our good, because these systems that we are clinging to are killing us. They're not just killing the people we think we don't care about, but they're killing us too. And that's um, that's the deep thing. Well, I feel like this has been a very long podcast. We should probably <laughs> wrap it up. Um, I was just going to say really briefly, and I think I can say this in less than a minute, that I um, there's a podcast that I'm starting to listen to. My friend Kaya rep 
recommended. It's put out by NBC and it's called South Lake. And it's about um, a town in Texas where really a lot of the reaction to CRT started. And it made the news recently because this one school board was um, talking about how teachers, it was a school system person talking to teachers about how they needed to shift some of their teaching and their classroom libraries in response to a new ordinance that Texas had passed to try to stop indoctrinate political indoctrination in schools. So basically to say, we think that our school children are being indoctrinated with CRT, and so we need to stop this. And so teachers need to uh, present both sides of uh, like any time that they're teaching about. Mm. And, and and so the woman who was training these teachers said, so for example, I heard this story. Yes, if you have a book in your classroom about the Holocaust by like Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, you need to make sure that you have the other viewpoint in your class library as well. And the teachers like, I'm sorry, so. I need to have like what is an like what is the other view? What does like, that uh, look like? And it was interesting. And what was helpful about that? I, I mean, it's horrific, obviously. But what is helpful about that is people can so clearly see like if I'm teaching my children about the Holocaust, um, I don't want a pro-Holocaust book in the room, right? Like, I don't want to say like you could read Lois Lowry's Number of the Stars, but you also could read Mein Kampf, and they're both just you know, they're equal, like just pick which one seems good to you, right? Like we know that that's ridiculous. So if you know that that's ridiculous when it comes to the Holocaust, then ask yourself why you don't know that it's ridiculous when it comes to the 1619 Project, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I would say like the reason is most of the people who were murdered during the Holocaust were white. Mm. And most of the people who were murdered during colonization, during the transatlantic slave trade, during the, um, as a product of manifest destiny, were not white. And so that just, we need to ask ourselves, why do we think the mass extermination of Jews is the most horrific evil that's ever been perpetrated on the face of the earth? And we need to teach our children never again. But when we want to teach our children about the transatlantic slave trade, which, which, cost many, many, many more lives, why do we need to nuance that and say, well, there's another way, you know, like that, like paying attention to that is really helpful because we want our kids to know the story of the Holocaust and to grieve it and to see themselves as people who would have disrupted it and stood against it. And we can teach our children the history of the transatlantic slave trade and we can teach our children the history of the extermination of indigenous people we can teach our children that history in the same way that we teach our children the holocaust it can be done and it is being done in germany right like we can do this and i'm all for i don't want to teach children to be democrat or republican and honestly i don't on most days see much much difference between them but we want to unequivocally teach our children that murder is wrong right so whether it happened in the 1940s or in the 1640s, murdering people, putting them in camps, whether they're called concentration camps or plantations, and making them work in near starvation conditions in order to produce for a certain subset of the population, that's wrong if it happened in Germany or if it happened in America. And the reality is like we've just been taught not to see it but that's okay. We as Christians 
can embrace the truth and know that the truth will set us free. And what it is revealing to a lot of us right now is that we had idolatrous illusions about our country and we need to be delivered of them. And I'm grateful that that is coming. That was more than a minute. (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything. (laughs) Um, Thanks for listening to us this week. If you want to hear... what is happening at Derida Prez. You can go to deridaprez.org. You can listen to Yolando's sermon. You could go there at 1030 on Sunday morning. Um, You're going to have like a whole festival. Yes, and worship outside. Yeah, so that's going to be a great day to show up at Derida Prez. Face painting and all that good stuff. And you can uh, go, are you going to put it on the YouTube? You're going to put it on YouTube also this week? I'm going to try. Okay, so you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch other people bounce in bouncy castles on YouTube. <laughs> That'd be great. You can also go to um, the Derida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website, and you can listen to Yolando's um, messages there as well, which is something you should do. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or join us on the live stream, which is on Facebook. You can find old messages on the YouTube channel or on our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or say it, say it for me. Anywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere you get your podcast. So thank y'all for listening and we will talk to you next week.